Mana 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 this is social discasting welcome to social discasting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i'm brandon aka brandon i hope you're well my guest is a videographer for an advertising agency as well as a director a writer a producer an editor and an arkansan whose delightful short film new west is currently traveling the domestic and international festival circuit and racking up nominations and wins along the way very exciting please welcome Jordan Mears, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's so weird to talk before and then <laughs> we go formal, you know, the way this works. It's always funny. There's a structure to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even that might be like kind to the show, admittedly, the structure. It's so bare bones at best. It's kind of like having a conversation with somebody and then ha- like that you met randomly and then halfway through you're like, oh, by the way, I'm yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is just podcasting, man. Yeah, man. Got to start somewhere because that's just how these things work. Deeply unfair question. How are you? Like in the moment, I'm I'm pretty good. My hands are a little sore, so I had training earlier tonight. We were hitting a punching bag, and so I uh, my hands are a little raw. My knuckles. So other than that, all good. Not my usual, I guess, melancholy self. Yeah, want the burn a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, no, everything's good. Everything's good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Simple. Yeah. It's one of those questions too where. Part of the reason for like starting with that was initially like, wow, we're all going through a pandemic and granted we still are, but or some form of the lingering, ongoing, long-term element of it. But it was just a question about like, wow, I really have to think about that now. Like what, Yeah. how am I? And you never know. And it's just something you have to think about. That's fair. And, and to be fair, like my mood can change pretty quickly. Like my girlfriend would probably say, oh, Jordan's a moody guy because my mm-hmm. mood can just rapidly, you know, change at the drop of a hat for the most part though i feel like i'm pretty even keel but uh no no everything everything's good you know i i guess if i had like if i had to say you know any gripes or anything like that i don't know you know you spend three years of your life working on something and you want it to be seen by as many people as possible granted i'm happy that anybody like is interested in it at all and enjoys it at all like when you ask me you know about the film or if it would be available online at any point i'm like you want to watch it and then the fact that you said that you enjoyed it like that means more to me than than anything else the fact that people find (laughs) find it entertaining and worthwhile so it's a lot of fun it really is and granted you know we did talk about two in the dm but it was just like that when you watch that movie in this case you know it's not like i'm going on a streaming service and watching it yeah it's me getting it through you and you so you know i'm watching it so i'm like god i really hope i enjoy this this will make things a lot easier and genuinely i did it was a lot of fun you know i had no expectations going into it and we'll get into it more in a little bit because i just have other questions before that but i will say that as somebody who's watched a lot of movies i didn't know where it was going okay it zigged when i thought it was zagging to your credit, which was fun. I enjoyed the references. I thought it wore some of them on its sleeve in a great way. Like I think I caught, you know, there was like a Matrix reference. There was a, another Big Lebowski camera shot. There was, I want to say a Deuce Bigelow reference. (laughs) Yep. There was a Deuce Bigelow. There was a Rolling Thunder reference in there too. That's a great movie. That line where, uh, oh, it's whenever uh, William Devane's character tells Tommy Lee Jones, like I found out where the men who killed my son are. And Tommy Lee Jones just like grabs his guns, starts loading them up, and he goes, well, let's go clean them up. (laughs) (laughs) Tommy Lee Jones really brought it in that movie. If anybody's not seen that, he plays like a very unhinged Vietnam vet who just fucking goes for it. And so good. 
It's a good movie. Like, if you could do a fantastic, like, 70s double feature, I would say pair that with Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and you just can't go wrong. Like, two movies that people don't really know about that are fantastic. Because I'd seen Romeo Thunder. I want to say it was, maybe I saw it in an interview with, like, Quentin Tarantino last year mm-hmm. where he casually mentioned it, probably. Maybe he was on a podcast. Then I saw the movie, I was like, holy shit. And also, William Devane has always been a great actor. He just really never got much of a leading no. man opportunity ever. Yeah. But he was always, like, a very, like, super valuable supporting actor. I want to say Marathon Man he was pretty great in, if that's the one I'm thinking of. Which one? Marathon Man I think he was in. Maybe I'm conflating that with somebody else. A great actor. Yeah, I mean, his performance in Rolling Thunder is, like, especially whenever he's asking the police officer that his wife's been seeing, like, to to twist the rope around him and all of that, like, while his hands are behind his back, he's just like, keep pulling that way. He goes, don't stop till you start to hear the bones crack. I'm yeah. like, man, this dude is so far gone, and then his family dies, and then he just goes even further over the edge, and he gets his hand you know chopped off in the garbage disposal and gets a hook for it and then it's just like you want to talk about a movie that zigs where it doesn't zig. yeah no shit but yeah i also caught you know there was a anchorman reference in it yeah it was just a really good time and thank you and also you're shooting on location for a good amount of it yeah yeah for any any independent film is not easy and that was a really cool thing to see and all of the green screen that we did in it like it's all very stylized yeah you know supposed to be like oh this is a cartoon world that we're in here or and and somebody even brought up like at the premiere like wow you guys really were able to use the spaces around you like to your advantage like nobody was filming in somebody's apartment or making it look like this place when it was actually this place they were like you really like found good locations and were able to use them make them look as cinematic as possible I was like, yeah, filmmaking, baby. (laughs) I'm about to say, it did feel like an organic use of the spaces. And even like the special effects where they were a value add, you know, not just like done necessarily to be like, well, we have to make them in the most realistic way possible. I think it was a really a contribution to the tone in a great way. Yeah, yeah. And and also, I mean, the fact that like the movie is just a live action cartoon in a way. Yeah. So definitely like in the more cartoony, like all of the flashback stuff, like it's definitely more cartoony. And over the top in those. And then when you get it into real, real day, I was like, well, I still want it to be over the top to an extent. And I want it to be cartoony and funny to an extent. But I need it to be a little disturbing as well. So that was an interesting tone to try and like, like, like a tonal line to try and ride. Yeah. Again, not knowing anything about, you know, the subject matter, what it would be about to just following pretty blindly where it started and where it goes or where it ends are two very like you know some tonal similarities in some way but in terms of the journey you went on Uh it went a very different way than you start off it was a fun ride oh thank you thank you and you know for as like a lot of people have actually said that where they were like i had no idea what to expect i really genuinely take that to heart i love i love hearing that and there are some people who enjoyed that aspect of it and then there are some people who were like i thought i knew where it was going and then i didn't and then i didn't like it as much because like some people didn't like like it as much because it didn't go where they thought it would, which is an interesting thing to hear i'm like so you're upset because it didn't play out the way you thought it would it is a reminder though that like there is an audience for everything oh 100 and just how like whatever movie you like least in this world is somebody's favorite movie i can't tell you how many times i've met a girl 
in my life who has who has told me that their favorite movie is The Master of Disguise. <laughs> Amazing. I've met quite a few. <laughs> Elena Kaiser, Sarah Kane. If you're listening. That's amazing. Yeah. I've not seen that movie in a long time. I know that there's a whole rumor that on 9-11, September 11, 2001, they were filming the turtle scene, allegedly, of that movie. That's the rumor. I don't know whether that's one of those trivia bits that like, isn't true, but it circulates a lot, but it, and people want it to be real. But allegedly, that's the case. That's such a myth. It's, it, it's like Dana Carvey and, and whoever else were like, we're going to take all of these like vignettes that would work as like little sketches on Saturday Night Live and cram them into a movie that just doesn't work or make sense. Yeah, and they tried that even before, like in his first, I believe, first post-SNL starring role, we did the movie Opportunity to Knox, where it was just them manufacturing situations to let him do different impressions. And didn't, didn't wasn't he in like a, it was like a gumshoe comedy? Like uh, I think that's it. Played, like, I think it's Opportunity Knocks. I think. Is that is that it? Okay. I think I th think so. Investigator or something. Yeah, it because at one point he was just they just kind of shoehorned in a thing where he is in a bathroom stall and he has to do a diversion, so he just does a Bill Clinton impression, oh. like that that type of stuff. It said too on your IMDb page that you want to be a filmmaker at eight years old. Yeah. What was the impetus for that? What movies, what precipitated that? So growing up, I don't know. I, I just, I, I was always glued to the TV. I don't know. There was always this like getaway and this comfort to watching things. I've got an older brother too. And some things that he would be watching, he'd be like, oh, we're going to watch Halloween, you know, and I'm like six years old <laughs> and I'm scared and I don't want to watch Halloween, but then I'm watching Halloween and... And I'm like, oh, this is actually fun. Like, this feeling of being scared is fun. But, you know, like, I would go to my grandparents on the weekends. Like, my parents would have date nights and stuff, and I would go to my grandparents. And my grandma and I, we would watch Tales from the Crypt every Saturday night on HBO. Or on Fox. It would come on uh, right after America's Most Wanted. So it was just like watching all of these things and Ghostbusters and Terminator 2 and... Wayne's World, like I was watching all of these things when I was like four or five years old, long before I ever knew that you could do something like that as a profession. Like to me, it was just like fun stories. Like these were my friends on, on screen. Or I distinctly remember watching Terminator 2 in the mornings before school and crying because, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the T-800 is lowering himself down into the molten steel and giving the thumbs up. <laughs> and I'm like, going off to you know first grade class so it was just getting caught up in all of these worlds and originally i just started to mimic all of these things that i would see especially like with jim carrey movies like liar liar ace ventura so on and so forth and i would start to kind of play make-believe in my head like i would create new stories with these characters in mind and i would act out as these characters and just go off down the neighborhood or with my dog or whatever and and pretend like I was Cameron Poe in Con Air, you know, and I would be playing Phil Collins in the air tonight while I'm running in slow motion with a toy gun and a and a tank top on. And so it was just all of these things like building up and like wanting to be a part of this world or these worlds that I was seeing on the television. Then whenever I got older or as I got older I realized, oh, people create all of this. People create these worlds. People create these characters. And they're like, 
you have to wear this and we'll use this kind of music and we're going to have explosions here and this is what's going to happen and that's what's going to happen. And it just really became exciting for me. And for the longest time, I thought I wanted to do acting as well. And so mm-hmm. like in school, I did a lot of theater. I was in a bunch of plays and everything, especially like in high school and also in middle school. And then around middle school is whenever I got my first camera. And that's when I really started to like mess around. My friend Matt Bates lives across the street from me. And Matt is actually in film industry here in Arkansas. Like he he works in Grip and Electric on pretty much every big film or TV show that comes through the state. Wow. We've worked on a few things here and there over the years in passing or we'll run into each other. But, you know, it always comes back to, in my mind, like we're, how old were we? We were like nine, ten years old and we had these cameras and we're watching Blair Witch and Blair Witch 2 and Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And we're like, hey, let's let's make our own stories. And so we made our own little shitty Blair Witch 3 the story of Ellie Kedward. Granted, it was only the opening, and we didn't have anything to make fake blood or anything like that. So what we did was we drew a fucking like blood splotch on a piece of paper, colored it red, cut it out, and then like, <laughs> had someone like in a robe and they're walking, and then someone like stabs them or something, and we like fade to black, and it cuts to them with like this haggard looking blood splotch that we cut out and put on. But it was like it was just stuff like that. But it was interesting because we were like figuring out how to tell stories in a very like rudimentary way and it's because we were watching all of these things and we would even ride our bikes we lived in this little suburban neighborhood but right outside of that neighborhood there was this strip mall that had a video and tanning place it was called razorback video and tanning and over the summers we would ride our bikes out there and we would just rent movies i remember we rented like Dracula 2000, Monster Squad, just anything and everything. And the one time I rented something that I had to return because my parents and everybody else were like, no, that's too much for you right now, was Natural Born Killers. That'll do it, yeah. I was like 10 years old, maybe, 11 years (laughs) old, and I picked up Natural Born Killers. And granted, I had already rented the Psycho remake and all this. Like, it was to the point where I would go and rent things I would put it on my parents' credit, and we're like, yeah, just charge it to my parents. And I'm returning one thing and renting another, and like the guy behind the counter was just like, wow, you're going to be one morbid little dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that movie's a lot. That's a lot for any age, I think. Obviously that age, but yeah, influence. Now watching it, like I, I know a lot of people hate Natural Born Killers. I love that movie, and honestly, if I were a film professor, I would show that film just because of how it uses all of the different forms of filmmaking you know they're using uh, 16 millimeter black and white film stock for some things they're shooting slow motion they're using sitcom cameras making every and, and sets and making everything look and sound like a sitcom they're using animation they're using every single trick in the book visual trick in the book for the visual medium that you can and gelling it all together in this chaotic psychotic way that just works and i know it's too much for some people but for like the film that it is i'm like it's pretty genius it makes a lot of sense considering the nature of what the film is in general i mean say what you will about the movie but it's not complacent he is doing every trick in his bag and uh i need to rewatch it in retrospect i've not seen it in a long time i mean even like 
the bit where Mickey Knox, Woody Harrelson's character, goes to get the snake bite juice from the pharmacy, everything is lit with green lighting. And there's this like green tint, and like he gets to do a shootout with the cops there, and the muzzle flashes are green. And it's just yeah, there there's just like this I don't know, there's I, I've never seen a movie like it since. And I really think that it needs more love. I really think it's underrated for sure. That's my love spiel on <laughs> Natural Born Killers. Thank you for listening. Yeah, I, I need to rewatch it now because I've not seen it in a long time. But you also worked at Hastings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hastings was my first job. I got it right after high school as soon as I like got into college. Yeah, I, uh, I worked there from 2008 until 2010, till the end of 2010. I... Uh, started off as a cashier and worked my way to the video department where I was the video guy. And yeah. They rented movies, not just sold, right? They okay. rented video games and movies. And then they also sold like books, movies, video games, and toys and movie props. And uh, there was also a coffee shop there. It was it was a it was a fun time, you know. And in 2010, that's whenever I first went off to work on the first feature film that I ever worked on was called Madison County. And I dropped out of school in the fall of 2010, like whenever that fall semester was starting. I dropped out the week after it started, got the money back, gave it to my grandma and, and parents and everybody who paid for college. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go work on this movie. I'm going to be gone for like a couple of months. Uh, bye, bye, pretty much. And... I went and I worked on Madison County. Almost died working on Madison County. I fell asleep behind the wheel of a car. Holy shit. Crashed it. Completely totaled it. That was two weeks into the shoot, and then we still had like two or three weeks left. So I finished it out. And then after that, it was like, okay, back to the real world. Now I'm not in school. Now I'm working at Hastings. I picked up a few more shifts other than my three days a week that I, you know, had requested while I was in school. And my parents were like, okay, you're either going to go to school or you're going to join the workforce. And I was like, I know everything. I'm going to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I was like, well, I, I, I really don't know everything, and I'm also kind of scared to make that leap. And so I went back to school, but I transferred from Arkansas Tech University, where I started out, and uh, went to University of Central Arkansas in Conway and moved there joined the film department and yeah met met some of my best friends while while I was there and we're still working on stuff together and still writing uh together and you know we all made new west together so yeah I, I nice. wouldn't change a thing filmmaking department and then then you get into advertising okay so while I was in college I in between semesters like say Christmas or uh summer whenever we had those like long breaks, I would actually go and work feature films like in mm. the state or out of state. And so while I was in college, I actually worked on quite a few feature films in between semesters. And so I was able to travel out to Los Angeles to work on a movie called Contracted, which was produced by the same guys I was telling you about that produced Barbarian recently. Mm. And I uh, worked on some local films, uh, Valley Inn, was one of them. My is that Joey Lauren Adams? Joey Lauren Adams is in it. My friend Natalie Canterday is in it. And my friend Blake Elder, his aunt, 
directed, co-directed it, and then he and his mom produced it, and he also shot it with Brian Stafford. Blake's a great dude. He 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 uh, co-owns Rock Hill Studios in Fayetteville. But uh, yeah, Blake's Blake's super super great dude. Just produced the Meg Ryan movie here. But anyway, and so I got to meet a lot of people in the industry, especially in the indie industry, out in Los Angeles whenever I did Contracted. And then working on things here, I got to meet a lot of people in the Arkansas film industry and came friends with a lot of them and have worked with a lot of them since. In senior year of the digital filmmaking program, films are chosen to be made. Not every film gets chosen. Mm-hmm. All of the students have to pitch their ideas and so on. And so I pitched a grindhouse film called Vampire Killing Prostitute, and it actually got chosen to be made. So we made that, spent a year and a half on that, making it. And then as soon as I finished it, I graduated. And I had also just gotten out of like a really terrible breakup, and I didn't really know what to do with my life. I had spent a year and a half on this movie that had done well. Like it had won awards and played at film festivals and it was playing in other film festivals, and it, it was like such a shock to my system. Like, now I'm just dumped out into the world. I don't have like a trajectory in mind, and I've also had a broken heart. So I didn't really know what to do. So I kind of floundered for a little bit, and I was like, well, I gotta get a job, I guess. So, like, I, substitu- I was a substitute teacher for like six months. It was, it was terrible. And I also, you know, I went back to school for a little bit. Because I was like, oh, maybe I'll do like an MFA or something like that. Really, it was to try and win back my ex-girlfriend, which it worked for a little while. <laughs> it sounds like a movie, doesn't it? But uh, I got a job on God's Not Dead 2. That kind of movie is not my kind of movie. But a lot of my friends were working on it, and I got to meet a lot of great people. And then after that, work really just kind of dried up in terms of like film. Back then, back in... When was this, 2015? Work would come every now and then. Like, it was almost like there were seasons for work, it seemed, in terms of, like, film, uh, filmmaking. So I was like, all right, well, all my friends were still in college. They hadn't graduated yet. And I was just kind of floundering and substitute teaching and was like, okay, I need to figure out what to do. So what I did was one day I just said, all right, I'm going to move out of Conway. I'm going to move back home with my brother who lives in Russellville, four years older than me. I'm going to get some jobs. I'm going to save up and I'm going to move to LA and that'll be that. I will move out there and get together with my friends that are out there and, you know, give it a go. Try and make stuff. I get like a job at like McAllister's and I get a job at and I'm still substitute teaching, and then I get a job at Ruby Tuesdays. Now, I say I got a job at McAllister's. They offered me the job, but the day they offered me the job was the day I got the Ruby Tuesday gig, so I was like, no, I'll earn more at Ruby Tuesdays, even though I would probably be a shit waiter, which I'll get to. I got the offer to work at an advertising agency, Center Rock, where I'm at now, on my like third shift at Ruby Tuesdays where I was like still in training. Like I never I never even waited on a table. Ever. And so I'm like on my third shift and I get a message from my boss, who's my boss now, Jerry, and he's like, Hey man, we've got an opening at this agency. Would you uh would you like to join? And I'm like thinking to myself, 
Now I moved back here. This is in Little Rock. I'm trying to save up to go out to L.A. finally because I'd put it off for so long. And they're like, we'll give you salary and benefits. And I'm like, done. (laughs) And the way that I got the, the gig at Center Rock is right after I worked on God's Not Dead 2, that ended during the summer. And I had a bunch of friends that were were doing the 48-hour film festival. Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, we want you to come and like work on this with us. I was like, honestly, like I really, I really don't want to do that because I just, I've been working on this movie for the past two months. I'm like dead tired. I just want to relax. And they're like, how about if you do something on the film that doesn't require, like, don't, you're not going to edit this one. You don't have to be here all night. Like, just come run sound or something like that. I'm like, okay, I can do that because then we can film it. I can record sound and then, you know, I can just fuck off and leave. So we did that and it was a group that were, like, people who worked on my film Vampire Killing Prostitute, but they were also teaming up with another group of people who I didn't know. The other group of people were my boss Jerry and the owner of Center Rock Steve, like they were filming at his house. And we just kind of hit it off while we were making this 48-hour film, and I was running sound for them, and I was like, I can hear the air conditioner. And they're like, oh, well... Does it matter? I'm like, I mean, if you want it to sound like shit or not, yeah. (laughs) That really stuck with them, I guess. And so whenever they had an opening, they got some business at the advertising agency and they had an opening and they were like, oh, this guy, he's like a straight shooter and he's he's blunt. He tells it like it is. And they'd seen some of my films and they were like, he can shoot, he can edit. Okay, let's offer him a job. And so I didn't even have to like go in and interview or anything like that. They just offered it to me. And I've been there for... It'll be seven years in February. It's pretty fantastic. And That's pretty fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, like, this job is the reason why I was able to make New West. Like, all of the equipment that we used for New West is Center Rock's equipment. Like, they didn't care that I was using it on the weekends. You know, they trusted me not to break anything or anything like that, and... Uh, so yeah, I was able to use all of the lights and the cameras and the lenses, uh, memory cards of, you know, I put so much, uh, footage on the drive. Like we, we've, we've got servers and I was like, I was like starting to run servers down. So I had to go out and buy like a bunch of other drives just to house the film on. Um, so yeah, I I wouldn't, New West would not be possible at all without Cinder Rock. <laughs> so that's amazing. What was the impetus for point at which you got the idea for the movie, started writing it before all the filming, which was you know obviously a process unto itself. All of my friends are creatives as well, and it got to a point where we were at a point in our lives with work and our creative processes where we were like, we're doing things that people are telling us what to do. We're doing work other people are wanting us to do or other people are telling us to do. Like, we have access to all of this equipment. We could literally make anything we want on our free time. Why aren't we doing that? Why are we just working nine to five and working on the things that we're supposed to be working on for our day jobs when we could be doing that, but also, you know, making the shit that we want to make on our free time? Because nobody else, you know, there are a lot of other people who don't have this luxury this equipment's just sitting there when we're not using it. That was the um, kind of the catalyst for kicking our asses in gear. And then I, my friend Cody, 
he he's a great musician, and he had had this album called In a New West, and I'd listened to it, and I was like, you know, you're a great musician. I know how to make a movie. Well, why don't we make like a music video or something for one of your songs? His song, No Cowboy, I had this idea. I was like, I think it would be funny if there was this guy in a horse mask and a cowboy, and... I don't know, it's like maybe the cowboy dies and the horse is trying to find his way in the world. So that was the initial germ of the idea. And then it became like, it's a concept album, why don't we make it like one long music video that tells this story. And then when we started writing it, you know, it became a short film, but that musical aspect of it stayed throughout. His album was the soundtrack of the film, granted, he had to go back and score a bunch of stuff and add new music, and, and he also wrote and performed a new song in its entirety, that whole opening, The Cowboy Way. Gaia yip gaio. So it, uh, that, was, that was the initial germ of, of, of the idea of can we take a guy in a horse mask and make an audience care about his journey and make them identify with him even though we never see his face. And what was interesting, because we actually shot some test footage, I was like, well, what's interesting is that if you turn the mask a certain way and the light hits it a certain way or the camera's positioned a certain way while they're turned a certain way, it does have expression. And in a way, it, you're also bringing whatever you're feeling to what you're seeing. Like you're projecting whatever it is you're feeling onto that mask as well. So I was like, I think this could work. Doing that and then also having music to help emphasize what's going on and what's, you know, the internal the internal melancholy and feelings and struggle and all of that. Because originally Trigger wasn't going to have any dialogue. He was going to be completely like just horse sounds. And then I was like, mm, no, I think that he should talk, but he should be a man of few words. Like, he talks, but he doesn't, like, overly talk. He's not Silent Bob, but he's also not necessarily the most loquacious talker at the same time. He only says what needs to be said. And I said, he's our Clint Eastwood. For the yeah, most yeah. part, he's just, like, kind of gruff and, like, uh -huh. but he's also, uh, he's also lovable and silly <laughs> at times. Yeah. Yeah, you used it pretty effectively, too, that mask, because that's that's a, you know, a tough thing to work with, I would imagine, in some ways, but... Yeah, well, well, I mean, more so for Cody. Cody, who did all of the music and voice trigger, that's actually him under the mask. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he, he was put through the ringer. You know, we were filming at the end of September of 2019, and then we filmed through like the first week of December, something like that, so we would shoot on like the weekends and everything. So he, he got... He got the full, he, he got all four seasons, it seemed like, in, in, in that small little stretch of time because he got it when it was still really hot outside, and then he got it when it was really <laughs> cold outside. When he uh, lamented having to wear the mask, and then when he was thankful for the ad layer on his head, probably, at that point. Not bad, I'll just keep it on right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you said September 2019, to when was the last shooting day? So we started filming it on the weekends, I want to say September 28th was the first day, and that's when we shot the opening. We shot the opening musical number, the very first thing we did, on green screen at my studio. And I want to say we finished maybe the first week of December. I don't know. I would have to go look at Instagram. That's kind of my time like time thing I me measure my time by now. Sure. Uh, sure. Especially with the film. 
So I want to say like the first week of December, maybe the second. And then we had some pickups in January. Like we picked up a couple of things during the house shootout in January. And then COVID hit. And then I started, you know, editing everything. And then I want to say by July of 2021 i realized i needed one last thing and that was after gene is shot i needed a close-up of his face and all of the bullet holes and everything like of him just laying there dead and then also get a wide of that to transition to the next scene originally i was just like oh i don't need it it's fine you know people get it like if i just have his body fall and there's the card that falls in the frame like you get it that's what happens in the adventures of briscoe's county jr with briscoe's dad but i was like well i don't want there to be any like I don't want people to feel like I'm leaving anything out. Whenever whenever this character comes back later on, I want I want to show them, "Hey, this this motherfucker is dead." Yeah, I know what you mean because like um in any TV show, I'm like, "Well, if they don't show it definitively, you truly believe it when you see it." And then even whenever that character does show back up, cuz you clearly saw he's dead. He's riddled with bullet holes all throughout. Spoiler alert. But you clearly see that he's dead. And then when he shows back up and it's like that big beam of white light and everything and he looks fine and everyone's like, what the hell is happening? And then, you know, he's like, talks to Trigger and he's like, how the hell are you still alive? Yeah. Literally the audience is thinking the same thing at that moment. And he's just like, I'm not technically. He's like, what are you like a fucking ghost or something? He's like, something like that. To your point, they know something's going on because they know he's dead because of the shot. So yeah, fair enough. That makes sense. And then by the end of it, you see, okay, he was an angel, which in hindsight, I would go back in and probably add a line with Gene where he's talking with Trigger, where he's just like, God said you needed my help to kind of clarify just a little bit more, just because there's, for the most part, everybody's like, no, I completely 100% understand the story and what's happening. I get that this guy is dead and he is a ghost or an angel or whatever, because at the end, he clearly walks off into heaven with angel wings and a halo. So you know he's dead. Yeah, and, and to your point, like, that could just... Sometimes you can have those moments, too, where it's kind of... The audience, plenty of times, will just automatically throw in the backstory how they see it, so long as you understand, oh, yeah, he did die, so this is a moment that is... Something is happening here that is more than just, oh, wait, he didn't die in the end. There's no ambiguity there. Yeah, especially, like, at the end for him, it's, like, such a sweet moment where it's just like, okay, this guy... He's a shit, so there's that sweetness to it. But yeah, I, in hindsight, I would go back and I would add a line just just there. Like, I think that some people would probably appreciate that because there are some people who are just like, I don't understand why he came back or why was he still alive or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, did you not watch the ending of the movie? You know? Uh, so I, I didn't think it was going to go over anybody's heads, but... It surprised me that it went over some, I guess. You're trying to hit most people, maybe, and not... You can't account for everybody, because when you account for everybody, you account for no one. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's one of those things. Somebody came up to me at a festival the other day, and they were like, your movie, like, breaks all of these rules. I was like, what do you mean? And he's just like, you break the fourth wall. You've got a narrator saying this. You've got this happening. You're killing your main characters off, and then you're bringing them back with hardly any explanation, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, like... Soap operas do that, like, you know, tongue-in-cheek things <laughs> yeah. do, you know, I was like, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek, like, you're not supposed to take it seriously, the only thing you're supposed to take seriously is, like, the emotions that you feel 
from it, like from these characters, especially by the ending. Like, if anything, you could think that it's the least funny film in the world, and I would understand because that kind of humor, that kind of broad humor, isn't for everyone, especially like the cruder, more crass things that happen in it. I completely understand that not being somebody's taste. But by the end of the film, if you're not going, aww... Then, yeah, to your point, like um, maybe for whatever reason you're you're just not with it totally throughout the entirety of it, but it's all about the investment, the characters, exactly, and the end game. You know, following that journey. And again, you worked at Hastings, and I worked at Blockbuster. Is one thing I learned working at Blockbuster it was that when you're recommending movies, the hardest thing to recommend because it's so divisive for people in terms of their taste are comedy and horror. Yep, but but you know what? You know what's interesting to kind of counterbalance that is. Working at Hastings, I would see all of the films that would be put out. Like, I would put those films out on the shelves. Like, big blockbusters or also, like, little independent films that no one knew about. But there would be, like, 20 or 25 or 30 copies. And people, and even horror films, and people would just come in and they would be like, Oh, there are so many copies of these films. They must be good. And they would be, like, all rented out and everything. And so it's interesting, like, to see what kind of drives people in terms of... And I guess today in Netflix, you look at Netflix, like, anything that's, like, number one through ten, you're going to have a majority of people going, like, oh, this is in the number one through ten spot. That means it must be good or something. And then they'll check it out. I mean, that's the equivalent of the what it used to be like in the video store with all of these other films. But you would have people who would come in and they would rent, like these terrible-looking, cheap, Lionsgate, Uli Lamel horror film. I'm like, you guys don't want that. <laughs> like, they, like people be like, ooh, have you heard about this? And I'm like, you don't want that joint. I promise. <laughs> You're like, yes, I've heard about it in all the wrong ways. Yes, I've heard about it. I'm like, that's like a handicam film, like, quickie that Lionsgate's just, like, pushing out there. And they would be like, I don't know, it just looks interesting. I'm going to try it. All right. And then they would come back and they'd be like, that was the worst film I've ever seen. I'm like, told you. I, told, I yeah. haven't even seen it. I'm telling you. Like, Boondock Saints didn't really do much for me, but it rented. It rented. Uh, yeah, college kids love that movie. Same thing with like Garden State and everything else. Fair, I'll, I, I, can, I can appreciate Boondock Saints for what it is. I can stand there and say, yeah, it's not a great movie, but it's... I would argue, too, at least for me, the best product or best result of Boondock Saints is a documentary Overnight, which I highly recommend if nobody's seen it. It's pretty incredible. He, uh, he's a real piece of work, ain't he? <laughs> he uh, managed to alienate so many people so quickly, despite so much at least perceived success at that time, you know, getting that record deal with Maverick Records and doing the soundtrack and then filming, directing, and writing the movie. Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Man, you want to talk about a guy who, like, burned every bridge around him and then just was stuck on his own little island and then had to try and swim to shore. <laughs> like, had to try to, like, swim swim to swim to work. That was him. Yeah, and then he ended up, in the last couple years, he co-wrote a movie called Guest House. Yeah, with Polly Shore. I know. Yeah. I bought it, and I was like, what is Troy Duffy doing co-writing this thing? I know, and Mike Castle, who's the co-star of that, I talked to him, and, and we still connect. Really great guy. And the movie has some really funny moments, actually. So I bought it on iTunes when I was out of town filming for something, and I was like, I had had too much to drink, and I was in my hotel room, and I was like, I just want to buy something. I was like, oh, this new Polly Short movie. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got some, it, it genuinely has some funny moments. Uh, I do recommend, I think it's on Netflix right it now. It also had like a sweet heart at the end. Like, I was like, like it had, like, and I, and I appreciated that. I'm like, okay, it wasn't just Polly Short shtick for Polly Short shtick. Like, 
some of it was that, but then by the end of it, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. It also wasn't made to just be a, let's rise to the level of our perception of, you know, a VOD movie and just do that. It was made by funny people, and it's a funny movie. I really enjoyed it. I know we're going to have to wrap it up soon, but one thing that we, real fast though, how many festivals has your movie played at this point, do you know? It's played in quite a few, and it's going to be in a few more. We're, you know, like, I know... It's going to be playing in Little Rock in January for this one festival called like the MLC Awards. And then we've got like the Made in Arkansas Film Festival coming up March or April. And then we're also waiting to hear back from like 180 other festivals. And then, of course, by January, there are going to be other festivals that we can enter in that we want to enter in. We're going to be going strong at least through the end of next year. And then I'll put it online or put it on Tubi or whatever people do. But they were like, it's too long. Uh, we think that, you know, it probably would work better as like a 15-minute film. That I don't agree with. Because um, you, yeah, you can't tell. That's extreme. Yeah, you can't tell an effect. Like to me, the story that we told, it's as long as it needs to be. Um, yeah. And... The other thing that they said is they thought that the subject matter was too niche for a wide audience. Okay, well, okay, that's, well, just, that's a just a matter of fit, then, then, with that yeah. festival. Yeah. So, and that's just, you know, it is what it is. But, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, uh, we've done well at, like, horror festivals. Like, some horror festivals love the film, and I'm like, it's not a horror film, but, I it, like, it can float around in genre circles. Like, the same people who like those kinds of films are going to like this movie. Sure, and sure. Then some some horror festivals are like your film's not horror enough, yeah, or yeah. even horror. So we won't put it. So it, it, it's weird trying to find out where we fit because, and I think that's what it all boils down to, at least for me. Like, because it's a weird kind of uncategorizable film. Like it's an action comedy, yeah, buddy comedy, yeah. But it's such a weird, weird one that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were to go to any, you know, if you were to go to a, a festival wherever and be like, oh, I'm going to watch their comedy block, like, you probably wouldn't expect something like this to pop up. I was talking with somebody the other day. I said, if you look at New West, the first half is straight up comedy. Like, it's just nonstop crude comedy. I said, but then if you look at the second half, it's still a comedy. But it's much more serious in terms of tone. Because by that point, we've had a major turn of events where this character we've been following is now not the character we're following anymore. You know, we're dealing with a character who's dealing with the repercussions of all of these things. And so it's a little more serious. While it's still goofy and weird and silly, it's a little bit more serious in terms of tone and in terms of what I was trying to do. And I think that that kind of helps balance it, especially by the end. Because by the end of it, you're like, oh, that was sweet. And everything worked out the way it was supposed to. But then you also have Trigger going, well, that was fucking weird. You know, like... Or, or them driving away on him driving away down that road towards the sunset, and there's a giant dick on the road. Which, by the way, we did not paint that on the road. It was already there, and we <laughs> didn't realize it until we were there filming. That's perfect. It was serendipitous. It was yeah, like hey, we're supposed to be making this movie. <laughs> this dick was simply meant to be. Yeah, yeah. 
I was like, look, we already had like the mother of all dick jokes, you know, at the bar scene where she like pulls it out and throws it at his face. Yeah. And then I was like, it's we have to end it on this. Uh, you know, no one's going to be expecting that. And, yeah. you know, it you know, yeah, it's juvenile and silly, but it works. It, it, it kind of humor, especially like I love South Park, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Like I grew up watching those guys. I was watching some South Park the other day. Granted, I can see how people grow out of that sense of humor, how people like can really gravitate towards it, you know, in their younger years and then grow out of that. Because I've got friends I've got friends who were in the movie who watched the film and they were like, that just really isn't my kind of humor. I appreciate the movie for what it is, but it's just not my kind of humor anymore. I'm like, okay, I I can respect that. Sure. I mean, that's just how it goes sometimes, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah. Things evolve sometimes or some things are just universal too, you know, like farts are funny. It just is a thing. Uh, yeah. Dick and fart jokes are never going to go out <laughs> of style. Um, <laughs> but I think that one of the big things that I tried to do with New West, and one of the things that I really focused on throughout was character. Like, yeah, the jokes were important, and I knew I needed laughs, but to me, everything that happened was driven by character and by focusing on the character. And there were scenes that I had, that we had filmed and, and that I had cut where I had, like, more comedic elements or things thrown in in terms of like like the bar scene where Gene's telling his story to the bartender. The bartender's heard it all before. I had so many like wild over the top reads and things from this guy and like it could have gone a completely different way, but I was like, no, I I need to focus on what Gene is saying and focus on kind of his melancholy and his sadness because that's what we need to care about. He wants us to care about it. I said, and then at the end of the scene show, oh, the bartender isn't even listening. <laughs> so it's like a big slap in the face to him. Or, for example, the scene with the newscaster talking. There's that scene where he's talking on the television and he's just really almost like, my direction to him was like, I, it's like you're stabbing him with a thousand, thousand cuts. Like a death of, of, of a thousand cuts. Tiny cuts. Uh, because the newscaster is talking about this character who's watching the news and he's pretty much being like, you're worthless. You should be dead. You deserve to be dead. Like, and... Uh, my friend Cody was like, what if you have the newscaster yelling everything out and screaming it out at the top of his lungs? Granted, that's funny and absurd. I was like, yeah, look, we'll do it. But I really need him to read it this way as well. If you look at the context of the scene, the scene wouldn't work, wouldn't be effective if you had this newscaster screaming out all of these things and then you have the you know main character feeling sorry for himself and all of that like you need everything to just flow into in into each other if that makes sense no yeah, it makes complete sense too and you know it's like they say that you do everything in the run-up pre-production you film it but the movie's really found or made in editing it, yeah it makes total sense so okay we need to wrap it up yeah 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 New West is not available online as of yet, to your point, but in the next year, it could very well be playing at a film festival near you, so be on the lookout for that. But what all otherwise do you want to point people toward before we wrap it up? I mean, you know, if people are interested in seeing it and they can't make it to a festival or something, I have no problem sending out, like, a private-timed link. You know, we can't have it online, obviously, for festival reasons you know we don't want to get disqualified or anything like that sure. but i have no problem you know sending out a privately uh private timed link i use this 
website called Indie TV. I think I sent you a link from it. And yeah. what what it is is people can watch it, and then the link deactivates after they watch it. Or if they don't watch it by a specific time, the link deactivates as well. And um, so, yeah, if you want to send it to Josh Rubin, <laughs> I bet no. But yeah, Instagram.com slash New West Movie. Check that out. Yeah, that's the movie website. And then you can also find me at Jay Mearsburg on Instagram or Jordan Mears, J-O-R-D-A-N-M-E-A-R-S on Facebook. My friends and I were working on another movie right now. It's going to be a full-length, 90, 95-minute long feature. New West was a 40-minute film. And this next one's going to be like a zombie comedy. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully good things will come with that. And, and you know, as much as, you know, you want people to, to watch the stuff and, and to have fun with it, you know, it's just all about the love of films and filmmaking and making it. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Like, even if I were just making little home movies that were just for myself, like, what's important is just doing it and enjoying what you and making the thing that you are not seeing out there that you think need to be. I hope all of that makes sense. No, it does. And that's a great note to end it on. Um, thank you again for doing this. I really enjoyed it. Man, this is a lot of fun. And I appreciate you, you know, showing interest in the film and giving me a platform to be able to, to talk about it and to talk about movies in general and, and my life. And we didn't even really get to talk about State of Grace. I know we ran out of time, but maybe that gives us another reason to do this again in the future. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm always available. So. But in the meantime, go watch State of Grace. Just go in blind. It's great. Gary Oldman's best performance, I think. It's up there. It's pretty amazing. But in the meantime, thank you all for listening. You gotta go serious mode now. Take care. Be well. Lead with empathy. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. And thank you again. Bye-bye.